1908, British riders had one single gold medal at the Olympic Games. In 110 years of the Tour de France, no British cyclist ever won the event. And top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team because they were afraid that it would hurt their sales if other professionals saw the Brits using their gear. Obviously not an endorsement that you would want from one of those kinds of companies. And so after a while, like I was telling you, they had to make a change. And this change was in the form of a new coach. And his name is David Brailsford. David Brailsford was hired by the British cycling um, team to become a performance coach. And David Brailsford, when he came in, he started to change some things in order to increase performance. Some of those things that he changed, you would think, okay, that makes sense why they would change that. But there was some unconventional habits that he built into the team that changed everything for them. Look at a few of these. The first one is, this makes a little bit of sense, of course, if, especially with cycling. They rede- redesigned the bike seats to make them more comfortable. If it's anything like my bike seat at home, this makes a lot of sense why they would do that. But then they did these two things, which just seemed like, why would, why would this matter? They hired a surgeon to teach each rider the best way to wash their hands to reduce the chances of catching a cold. And then they determined the type of pillow and mattress that led to the best night's sleep for each rider. Brailsford, he went in and he took all of what this team was doing and put it under a microscope and started to change things that you wouldn't think mattered but ended up mattering a great deal. Because from 2003 to about 2007, they started making these changes. And then in 2007, everything changed. James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, puts it this way. During the 10-year span, from 2007 to 2017, British cyclists won 178 world championships, 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals, and the biggie, They captured five Tour de France victories in what is widely regarded as the most successful run in cycling history. Why did this all change? It's because they built in new habits that they didn't see for a while, but when they needed it most, it changed everything for the British cycling team. Which is why we are in a message series that we're calling Habits learning about spiritual disciplines, the things that we do every single day, regardless if we want to do them or not, to see an outcome later in life, whether days, weeks, months, or even years. And that outcome, hopefully, is to become more like Jesus. And like I told you, Brailsford had some interesting habits that he built into the fabric of the British cycling team that made all the difference. I'm going to introduce you to a habit today that is similar to that that many of you are going to question right when I talk about it. And it's meditation, or specifically meditating on Scripture. Now, I understand why some of us, especially in the church or in Christian circles, would say, whoa, 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 whoa. we're going to be talking about meditation? Isn't that wrong? And so in order to really understand what we're talking about, I want to answer two questions right from the top. 
two questions or two hurdles we have to get over to understand if this is something that we should do in our everyday lives. So here are the two questions. Isn't meditation bad? And why can't I simply read scripture? Why do I have to meditate on it? So let's tackle the first question. Is meditation bad? And at a, simple, a simple answer to that is no, it's not. In fact, meditation, studies show us, is very, very good for our health. Our spiritual health, our emotional health, our physical health, our relational health. There's something that happens within the brain that, that occurs when we uh, perform meditation at a long uh, rate of time. So if we do it day after day after day, something literally in our brains change because of it. So it's not bad. But the question that we have to ask ourselves that I think many of us are asking is this. Why are we doing it? What's the purpose of it? And what desired outcome do we hope to get out of meditation? Now, if we look at it through those kinds of questions, we can look at three different options that we'll look at this morning. The first is what we'll call non-religious meditation. The second is the Eastern religion or New Age meditation. And the third we'll call the Christ-centered approach to meditation. Now, we have to see what all three of these things say, and then we can evaluate why it's important to perform meditation in each of these realms, all right? So here's the first one we'll call non-religious meditation. The path of non-religious meditation is mindfulness, to obtain a healthy perspective on life, which then leads to peace. Now, when I say non-religious meditation, what I mean by that is there are many people who practice mindfulness who have no uh, relation to a God, isn't doing it for a spiritual purpose or a religious purpose. They are practicing what we call mindfulness, which is simply getting in touch with who we are as a person. Mindfulness is literally just being present right where we are at, setting aside distractions to really discover who we are and what we're becoming and where we're going in life. Meditation in this way or mindfulness is that the more we get to know ourselves and can get in touch with ourselves, the better that we can live the life that we want to lead, which then hopefully leads to peace. The second kind of meditation is which many of us are familiar with or at least aware of is the Eastern religion or New Age approach to meditation. This approach says that they're going to empty the mind and detach from the world, and thus it leads to peace. And so those who practice this meditation would say that they have a personality, but they don't want to tap into that even more so. They actually want to detach themselves from who they are. And they want to join this transcendent world called nirvana. Not Kurt Cobain's nirvana. Some of you know who that is. But nirvana, and here's the reason. The world, according to those who practice in this way, is really bad. And we have to escape it, get away from it. Even ourselves, we're bad. We need to get out of that. And we want to join this transcendent, otherworldly place called nirvana because if we achieve this kind of nirvana or can get to this kind of place, then we will have satisfying peace that will lead us throughout our lives. So that, in a nutshell, is what this kind of meditation is. 
The third kind of meditation is Christ-centered, which we would say is filling the mind with God's word and attachment to Christ, which leads to peace. So we don't empty the mind of its problems of ourselves in order to join something else. We actually fill our minds with something. And we fill our minds with God's word, what he has to say about who we are and about life and about God and everything in between. Because when we fill our minds with God's word, what happens is that God's thoughts and God's ways become our thoughts and our ways. Consciously and subconsciously, we're thinking in a way that honors God and it's helping us become the person he's called us to be. And in addition to that, it attaches us to Christ. We don't have to detach ourselves from ourselves, but rather we get to see ourselves in light of who Christ is. So a way I kind of think of this is, say I'm looking at a mirror and I see myself. If I were to put a cross on that mirror and then looked in the mirror, I can still see myself, but I can't see myself unless I look at it through the lens of the cross. And that's what a meditation is in this sense. It's attaching ourselves deeper into Christ so that the deeper I look to myself, the deeper I actually find myself in Jesus. And that's the path of Christian meditation. Three different paths that lead to the same outcome, correct? Maybe. What I want you to understand right away before I explain some of these other things I'm about to explain is this. I am not judging mindfulness. I'm not judging the, the near of uh, the New Eastern or the, I'm excuse me, the Eastern religion or the New Age forms of meditation. If you are here today and you're practicing those, I, I assume you have really good reasons why you would. So I'm not here to judge that. But, but if you'd give me permission, I would just love to show you why I believe they can lead to peace, but it's short-sighted. It's a false kind of peace. It's a peace that runs out, even though we may not even understand it. So we talk about mindfulness, let's say. I love that they're stopping and looking deeper into themselves. That's important. But here's the issue. The deeper I look into myself, the more I realize I don't like myself. (laughs) And what I mean by that is the deeper that I look into my heart, and if I'm really being honest, I'm being present with myself, I realize, wow, at the depths of my heart, there's a lot of selfishness. There's a lot of ways that I inflict pain on other people. And there's nothing in me that even if I try to work on myself, it seems like even though I may take a step or two forward, I go backwards. And I go back to who I always am. And I act in a certain way that leads to damage both inwardly and outwardly. That leads to a false peace. I may feel it in the moment and feel like I'm doing better, but then I go back to who I always am. I need help outside of myself. And when it goes to the, to the new age form of meditation, I love that they say, I, I want to get to this otherworldly place so I can experience peace. But you know what? That's not reality. Because even if you experience that peace, you still have to walk back into the world. And I don't need to escape the world. I need to enter the world. And when I'm entering the world, I need to know that I can find peace there. I can't outrun my problems. I need help dealing with them. And that's the thing about Christ is he gives us that peace through him. He allows us to see not only ourselves but the world through his word so I can enter into it and live it in such a way that I can have peace regardless of my circumstances because I'm 
hearing from God and seeing who I am in light of who Christ is. So that's why I feel the first two, I understand why people find those attractive. Again, I'm not judging it, but I would just ask, look at it through that lens. Do you really find the peace that you're looking for? And could Christian meditation be the answer to your practices? Now, I know some of you are not convinced yet, and that's okay. Let's ask this question then. Why can't I just simply read scripture? Why do I have to meditate on it? In other words, there's some of us in this room who have what we call a daily devotional. Whether that's the daily bread, or uh, maybe it's the devotionals that the chapel pastors send out three times a week, or you're in the midst of reading the Bible in a year, or for you, you would say, I don't read scripture a lot, but I come to church, and when you put it on the screen, I'm reading scripture. Why do I have to meditate on it? Why do I have to allow it to fill my mind and fill my heart? Why do I have to let it grow in me, so to speak? Why can't I just read it? Let me give you an example of why. So this fellow right here obviously looks like he's in a lot of pain. And that pain would be studying for an exam that probably isn't going to go well, according to him. And if you were to sneak into the library or into where I would be studying at a Starbucks, this is exactly what I would look like in either college or seminary. I would have my computer open and my study materials, and I'd have a big cup of coffee there, and I would be thinking, why am I here? This is a waste of time. I'm probably going to fail this exam anyways. Now, the reason is that I was a poor test taker. And the reason I was a poor test taker is because I had poor study skills. Let me just give you a, an observation to my own study skills. Sadly, I told this story last night and my mom was here. My mom goes, I had no idea. This is how you study for exams. I apologized to her and said, sorry, I wasted your money. But anyways... So here's what would happen. You know, when you walk into uh, whatever kind of college-level class, whether it's undergrad or postgrad, uh, usually a professor hands you a syllabus. And all the dates that you need to know are on the syllabus, even the dates of the test. So I would have no excuse. Let's say it's the end of a fall semester. It's December 15th. I'm going to take an exam. I would have no excuse starting in September that I didn't know about that exam. So let's say December 15th, exam comes. I could have been studying September, October, November, even early December. Well, for me, I would start about December 14th at about 9 o'clock to midnight or so. I would get all my material out, and I'd be like, oh, my goodness, I am in so much trouble. How in the world am I going to pass this exam? And the reason I studied this way is because I really didn't care about learning the information. I just cared about getting a good grade. <laughs> and so I would study the information and just download it into my brain and try to fit as much as I could in all the hours that I had to study. And it's so funny, the clock goes really, really, really fast when you study this way. So I'm dumping the material in my mind and it's like three or four in the morning, I'm thinking I at least have to get a couple hours of sleep. There'd be other times where I'm slamming two, three monsters coffee, I don't even care at that point, I just need to get through it and I'm gonna just regurgitate it onto an exam and then walk away. Now, there were times when this study, uh, my study process, it worked. If you're a student in here, please, your parents are telling you, don't listen to him right now. It does not work. And most of the time, it didn't, I'll be honest. And those are the times I didn't tell my parents about my grade in the exam. But I remember, no matter if I got a good grade or a bad grade on the exam, every time that I studied this way, and you came up to me in a few hours or even the next day, and you asked me about what I studied for, I couldn't tell you anything. 
And I just spent all this time stuffing it in my brain, but I could not remember it. Which meant if I forgot it day one, I don't have it today. And I went to study, and I, like I said, I, I wanted to get good grades, but I didn't really care about learning the information. I couldn't really carry it forward into my career now. How often I thought to myself, if I would have just paid more attention in school, I wouldn't be in some of the predicaments that I get in today. I tell you that story because I wonder if that's how we may be approaching Scripture. I wonder if the reason we read the Scripture isn't to allow it to live in us, to allow us to learn it so that we can use it, so to speak, as we walk through life. But we read Scripture in a way that we feel better about ourselves for doing it, or we can checkmark it off, and then we go about our day. Or we say, oh, we went to church, I'm here to fill up my tank, I'm going to feel great about that. And that's really the only reason why we either come to church or read the Bible. It's not about living in us, it's more about just reading it and getting in us. And the problem with that is, what happens when you're about to approach a situation, whether you need to exercise patience, or be kind, or share Christ's truth, or do something that's a risk. Or to try to approach something in a way that's building into who you're becoming character-wise. What do you have to go on? If we just read scripture but we don't remember any of it in a few hours, then we are relying on what we're saying about ourselves, what other people are saying about ourselves, what, what the world says about us. But we have no chance to allow God's truth to transform our lives because it doesn't live in us. We read it for the wrong reasons. And maybe I sound heretical here. Jay's here. He can correct me afterwards. But if you're reading the Bible for that reason, you should just stop. You're thinking, whoa, what are you saying? Yeah, I, I mean that. Here's why. There are more exciting books out there that you could read. There are better quote books out there that you can look for for inspiration to, to make you feel better about yourself. Because the Bible is not supposed to be created just to make us feel better about ourselves or to check off a list. The Bible has been created to allow it to live in us so we become more like Jesus and we live our lives like Jesus. All other ways of approaching Scripture mean nothing if it's not changing who we are on the inside out. It's the reason why Paul in, the, in Colossians 3.16, he says, let this message about Christ in all its richness, fill your lives. That word richness, it doesn't mean a drive through meal at McDonald's. <laughs> you just stuff that in your mouth. You don't care about the nutrition. You don't care about how it tastes. You just want to get some food in you. But what he's saying here, it's that kind of richness where you've prepared a meal or you're going out to an expensive meal and it's going to be really good. You're with good company and you're just going to enjoy the flavors of that meal because it's so incredibly satisfying to your, to your mouth and to your stomach. He says so too that God's word should be so satisfying to our souls that it transforms us. It's, we see ourselves in light of who God is and then we move forward in that way. That's what the word fill here means. The word fill literally means to allow it to live in us, to permeate our lives to grow in us. It literally means to make its home in us. Are we treating God's word as a drive-through? 
Are we treating it as something where it's living and growing in us? And if you want to know so, if it's doing that in your lives, ask your spouse. Or ask your kids. Or ask your coworkers. Or ask your friends. They'll be able to tell you if God's word is living in you. And the interesting part of that word fill, it's not a noun, it's an action word, which means it's meant to lead to change. That's why Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says this. The authors of scripture refer to the idea of meditation 58 times. In each case, in the Old and New Testament, there is stress upon changed behavior as a result of our encounter with the living God. Scripture is not our Facebook feed. Scripture is not a newspaper or a magazine. It's not about obtaining information. If you look at Scripture to obtain more information, I promise you, you're going to use it in a way that God has not intended for us to use. The Pharisees used scripture for information to use against other people. And Jesus says, you may know it all in your brain, but you're a hypocrite because it hasn't changed your life. That's why scripture is not meant for information. It's meant for transformation. We're more worried about what it's doing in us than what it's doing in other people. We're more worried about it letting it sit in our lives and show us how we take our next steps in our Christian faith than we are just checking it off, saying that I did it for the day. And someone who knew that this had to happen in their lives because so much was riding on it is a guy named Joshua. Joshua in the Old Testament He starts off, and when he becomes a leader of the Israelites, he has two big things staring right at him right away. He can't come in and learn the culture, learn the people, start off small, and and then work his way up to big goals in the company. The first thing Joshua has to do is fill the shoes of one of the greatest leaders of all time, Moses. Moses dies, and Joshua's next in line, and Joshua is up to lead the Israelites. You're like, holy smokes, that's huge. How do I do it? But the second thing he has to do is to lead the Israelites into the promised land. So he has to fill the shoes of one of the greatest leaders of all time and then take a risk in leading into a place where God has promised his people and Joshua gets to be the one to do it. How does he do it? Well, thankfully, right before he's about to go through this endeavor, God steps in and he starts to speak to Joshua. The other day, I was with my son Hudson, and uh, remember the Titans came on TV? Such a great movie, isn't it? What I love about that movie is you see uh, black and white uh, players who were segregated because the schools were segregated back then, who hated each other, who fought with each other. At the end of the movie, they are attached to the hip and would do anything for each other. And the reason is Coach Boone, played by uh, Denzel Washington, was so good at just riling the guys up and telling them exactly what they needed to do in order to achieve this crazy goal in front of them. And that's what God does here. He acts like a coach. He comes alongside of Joshua, and he gives up this pump-up speech right before he's going to do this. And here's what some of this says in Joshua 1, verse 6 through 9. He says, Be strong and courageous, Joshua, for you are the one 
who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Now, God says that twice. Here to Joshua, he'll say it again to Joshua in another verse or two. And then at the end of chapter 1, God's people say to Joshua, if you do what God's calling you to do, we're going to follow you. You'll be strong and courageous. So four times Joshua hears that he's called to be strong and courageous. How does he do it? Pause. How do you do it? What's your plan to be strong and courageous? Maybe you haven't thought about it, but I want you to now. Even to get out of bed and, to this cr- and live in this crazy world, you have to be strong and courageous. Every single day to make choices, especially to live out God's way in this world, you have to be strong and courageous. And I'm not even talking about all the big things that you and I have to encounter. Whether it's a financial decision or a work decision or a family decision or whatever that thing is in your life and it is huge and you have to be strong and you have to be courageous. What is your action plan to achieve it? Think about it. What is that thing that you employ every single day to live in strength and courage in all aspects of life? I wonder if it looks like this. He says, Joshua, the way you become strong and courageous is you have to be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. You do not deviate from them, turning either to the left or to the right or to the left. If you do this, then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate. There's our word meditate. If you are weary or leery of meditation, well, God's saying to do it. You meditate on God's word day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it because obedience leads to transformation. When we do it, even though we may not want to do it, it leads to a life that honors and pleases God. Only then, Joshua, Will you prosper and succeed in all you do? This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He says only then, if you meditate on God's word day and night, if you allow it to live in you so that it transforms your life, then you will be prosperous. Then you'll be successful. You know what it doesn't say? Joshua, you are this kind of personality Joshua, you are this kind of leader. Joshua, you need to do this, 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 and this. He doesn't write 21 irrefutable laws for leadership. He says there's one thing that you can do that you will succeed in in order to live out what I'm calling you to do. And it's meditating day and night on his word so it lives in you, so you can hear my voice, so they can come out of you and transform the lives that you are in contact with. Does your action plan look like Joshua's? I'll be honest. I read scripture. But if I had to really look at what I'm doing every single day to try to be successful as a father and a husband and a pastor and whatever else endeavors I'm trying to go with right at the moment, I can promise you God's word is up there, but it's not my lifeline. It's Okay, what am I going through? Let me read a good verse. Let me shoot up a prayer to God. And then, without even realizing, I live in my own strength. 
How often do you and I live in our own strength and try to muster up our own courage to only find ourselves strengthless? How often that we just try to do it and do it and do it and we fail? I can promise you the main reason, not one reason, the main reason is because God's word hasn't made its home in our lives. I'm not saying reading scripture. I'm saying living in scripture. Allowing scripture to shape our thoughts and shape our ways. I don't care what your friends think. I don't care what your coworkers think. I don't care what your family thinks. The only way that you and I will understand what God says is by letting God's word trickle down into our hearts so that it lives in and through us. Joshua lived by that and he was successful. The only way you and I can succeed is by meditating on his word day and night. What will that look like for you? Don't just come to church and fill up your tank because by the time you go to your car and get home, it'll be empty. Then what? What would it look like to allow God's word transform who you are on the inside so it leads to life change on the outside. So I want to give you a few ways to do this. And the first way to develop this habit, and these are going to be in your teaching notes, so if you don't get a chance to write them all down, they're there for you. The first is this, don't wait for motivation, embrace discipline. Our culture thrives on motivation. We try to pump people up. We try to get them to feel good about themselves so that they'll do a behavior and that behavior leads to the outcome that they want. But motivation is very, very fleeting. I can't tell you how many times that I've woken up on a Friday morning and I felt motivated to eat a salad for dinner. Oh yeah. I, was, I worked out. I was really excited. I'm going to eat healthy. And by the time dinner comes, somehow the salad has moved from my plate to my wife's plate, and I am eating pizza. Not just my pizza, my kid's pizza, and then my friend's pizza, because it's so easy to not be disciplined and yet be motivated. Motivation runs out. How many times I want to get up early in the morning, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. The alarm goes off, and somehow I've hit and snooze six times, and now I'm late. (laughs) How does that happen? Because when we try to live by motivation, It runs out very quickly. But if we live by discipline, which is doing what we don't always want to do to get the results that we want to get, if we do that when it comes to meditating on Scripture, then God can do something with that. I'll tell you, I don't always love reading God's Word, especially allowing it to meditate, or meditating on it, because that takes time, and I don't have a lot of time. I'm busy, I'm selfish, I have a lot of other things going on in my life, and I always say I don't have time for God's word. Now, when I hit, when I scroll over on my phone and I look at the screen time, how often I've been on social media and other entertainment apps, when it says like two or three hours a day, I don't really have an excuse. All of us have time. And if you don't have time, make time. Because if not, God's word will never live in you, and you'll never have a chance to truly allow it to change your lives. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119. This is a psalm all about how much he loves God's word. And it's so long, but it's so amazing. And these two verses, I want to stay on the screen right here because I want you to understand this. Here's what he's saying. 
Even princes sit and speak against me, but I will meditate on your decrees. And then a, a little while later, he goes, I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. Now look at this. Let me ask you. When someone speaks against you, what is your response? Your spouse? When they say something, a coworker, someone gossips about you, is your first inkling to say, you know what, God, what do you say about that? I've been meditating on your word, and, and man, you tell me who I am. I don't have to fight back. You tell me I can be patient and humble and kind. I can listen first and speak later. All of these things that are in God's word, wouldn't it be nice to have that at our fingertips? Instead, when someone speaks against us, we become defensive, we yell back, we, we, we walk by them in the hallway, we don't say anything, but our body language and our presence just speaks for itself. We are going to rant about them on Facebook or whatever we do. We're going to text them, text about them behind their backs, gossip about them. Wouldn't it be nice to know God's words at our fingertip to actually do something about it? God's way? Or when you're sad, I guarantee you, if you're not now, you will be soon. And you're going through suffering in a hard time. What is interpreting that suffering for you? Because if it isn't God's word, pretty quickly you're going to give up on God. Because God's not going to be good in your eyes, and you're going to believe what everybody else says about him. But when you're in his word and you realize that God will take your pain and make it into an incredible opportunity to worship him and help other people, that changes everything, doesn't it? Or pain is just temporary because uh, we're going to go to a place someday where it'll be incredibly peaceful, and right now I can walk with Jesus in that pain knowing he's by my side? It doesn't happen when we just open a Bible verse and check it off a list. It doesn't just happen if you guys come to church once a week. It happens if God's word is living in us day in and day out. The second thing is we need to read the text slowly, intentionally, and repeatedly. We, we do so in a way where it literally we can memorize the word. And we do that by asking good questions of the text. And so these are some of the questions I want you to wrestle with this morning. Again, these are in your notes. Imagine reading a verse or two, not a whole chapter, just a few verses, and asking these questions. I want you to do that. So I want to look at Philippians 2, 3 with you. Familiar? But sit in it for a moment. Don't just read it and think about other people. What would this look like for you? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. How many of us in this, world, this room are either really selfish or all we do is try to impress other people. That's what social media is about. Impress other people. Highlights. Imagine if we didn't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Imagine if our lives we approach with humility and every single person we came in contact with, whether you like them or not, we thought of them as better. Not equal. Better than ourselves. How would that change some of our marriages? How would that change some of our relationship with our in-laws? How would that change our relationship with our kids? Co-workers, friends. Finally, allow it to be the last thing you read at night. So even when your subconscious kicked in and you're dreaming and your mind's still going, whether you recognize it or not, it's reflecting not on the day or the stress of the next day, but on who God is. And read it in the morning as well. Let it be the first thing that we go to, not social media, not email, but God's word. Imagine if we did this with God's word, what it would do in our lives. It would transform it. 
but we gotta make the time to do it. Will you allow it to happen in your life? Let's pray. Father, all of us are busy. All of us have even places we have to go today. We have our schedules lined up for even this next school year and stuff. God, where do you fit in that? Lord, we just ask that we would make time for you, not just to read a verse so we feel better about ourselves or feel inspired. We read a verse to know what it means to have our ways shaped by your ways, our thoughts shaped by your thoughts, so we can live out who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.